I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. What do you think of when you think of the genre of fantasy? Whether it's fiction, TV, cinema, games, are there certain elements you need to have for something to be considered fantasy? Well, you might say fantasy is medieval, or at least set in a time of swords and sorcery. But fantasy doesn't have to be medieval. There's plenty of fantasy set in contemporary settings. You've got urban fantasy. Okay, but fantasy has to be epic in scale. There are always grand and noble characters. Except it doesn't. Fantasy can be about very ordinary people. Right, well, fantasy does at least have to be set in an imaginary world. Except it doesn't. Um, the Harry Potter series does not take place in a in a totally separate world. It's a somewhat fantasticized version of our world. Okay, well, fantasy always has magic. But then you've got fantasy works like, for example, The Wizard of the Pigeons by Megan Lindholm, um, where it's not at all clear if the main character does actually have any magic or if they're just a Vietnam veteran suffering from PTSD. I would push against the idea that fantasy has, like a set of characteristics that it needs. Um, like... If you take books as different as, um, let's say, The House of Shattered Wings by Aliette de Baudard, no idea if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, um, which is about basically a wrecked Paris after the war in heaven has caused angels to rain down on it. Um, that That's very different from The Lord of the Rings. And again, compare that to Who Fears Death by Nadia Okorofor, um, which is set in this far future um, version of Sudan where you have ethnic cleansing and um, kind of very contemporary political uh, things going on and, and advanced technology and you also have a lot of magic and and fantastical elements taken from Nigerian folklore um, and Nigerian kind of myth. As you quickly realise, getting to the heart of fantasy is not nearly as easy as it seems. I've been chatting, by the way, to Dr. Jared Hines, who is both a fan of and expert in fantasy. He has a PhD in English from Trinity College Dublin on the work of J.R.R. Tolkien and has published widely on the fantasy genre. I got in touch with him because I wanted to get a better idea of what fantasy is at its core and how it's become this modern pop culture behemoth. Why, as we were chatting, were tens of millions of people in almost every country on Earth debating and discussing and waiting in anticipation for the conclusion of the most popular TV show in the world? A show set in an imaginary medieval world with magic and dragons and ice zombies. Well, as you might imagine, fantasy goes back long before Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, to name perhaps the two go-to works when people think of fantasy today. In fact, one of the first things Dr. Hines and I discussed was that maybe we shouldn't really be thinking of fantasy as some sort of genre of fiction at all. If you come at it from another angle, almost everything is fantasy. It's realist fiction that's the tiny subcategory. If you take it very broadly, so it's the literature of the impossible, imaginary worlds, imaginary people, imaginary beings, magic, things that just don't exist in everyday life. Now, that's actually most of literature for most of recorded history. Like, if you take the very broad view, Gilgamesh and Beowulf and the Odyssey and the Nibelung and Lead, they're all fantasy. So that's not really helpful. Um, though it does, it, it, you know, as someone who's a fantasy fan, it does make me feel kind of nice that, you know, literary fiction is this, like, 250-year aberration and fantasy is actually normal. Um, but, <laughs> so... I like this idea. It's a refreshing reminder of how we often forget the history of literature and storytelling. 
but admittedly it doesn't really get us anywhere in trying to understand modern fantasy, the genre as we recognise it today. So the antecedents of something like Game of Thrones go back to the 19th century or even a little earlier. Gothic literature is important as a precursor to both modern fantasy and horror. And in the 19th century, fairy tales and children's stories obviously contained lots of the elements you might find in a modern fantasy story. Later in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, you had works like Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz. You had the weird fiction of writers like H.P. Lovecraft and the hugely influential stories of Lord Dunsany. He was an Anglo-Irish baron who's not particularly well known anymore, but who was really, really famous in his day and was a prolific writer of fantasy stories. You also had the very influential fantasy writing of the Scottish author, George MacDonald, and then William Morris. Morris is mostly known today for his role in the arts and crafts movement, but he was also a renowned poet, activist, and fantasy writer. And these are just a few of the important names. Really, though, the formation of modern fantasy as we know it today took place in the 20th century in two steps. So first, you have the pulp magazines, which kind of get going in the 1920s, or get very important in the 1920s, and and kind of have their heyday from then until the 1950s. So you have publications like Weird Tales and Unknown, and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which I think is in 49, and writers like Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Fritz Lieber, Elspeth de Camp, uh, Jack Vance... Uh, Shirley Jackson, Rogers Lasney, and a very young Ray Bradbury kind of get their start in these publications. But the kind of fantasy they're writing is um, often what you might later call low fantasy or sword and sorcery, where it's not necessarily this epic fate of the world. It might just be, will our heroes survive to the end of the day? Will they get away with loot? Will they get paid? That's the first step. Step two involves a single work of fantasy, the work of fantasy, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In the field, Lord of the Rings is like this giant weight at the very centre that pushes down, causing everything to start rolling towards it. Its influence is inescapable. The second step is the fantasy paperback boom of the 1960s. So The Lord of the Rings is published in 1954-55 and um, does fairly well. And then in 1965, it comes out in paperback in the United States. Um, Controversially, uh, I think it's Ace Books, brings out their own version, getting around a loophole in the law. Without, so they bring out their own ver- paperback version of Lord of the Rings without uh, paying Tolkien any royalties. And so Tolkien's American publisher, Ballantyne, rushes out an official copy, and there is a bit of a media scandal and fuffle about this, which is wonderful because it drives sales. And so Lord of the Rings in paperback sells really well. And Ballantyne decide they need more books like this. Uh, the people who, like, who, who are buying Tolkien want more and Tolkien's not producing it he's a famously slow writer so what they do is in 1969 they bring out the Ballantine adult fantasy series where they take existing authors and republish them and market them as being in the style of Tolkien you like Tolkien here's more of that and so you get people like uh, William Morris and uh, Fritz Leiber and Elspeth de Camp Lord Dunsany uh, Hope Merley's being brought back into print and and marketed as fantasy. This is now a, a, a genre that you, you can purchase and you can look for in a bookshop. 
Um, and that kind of creates fantasy as the publishing genre that we know of ever since. So fantasy becomes a popular and distinct genre. Novels from previous decades are retrofitted, and soon new series emerge, some more original than others. In 1977, you get the beginning of two fantasy series that are very clearly inspired by Tolkien and maybe not super original in their execution, and that's uh, Lord Fowl's Bane, Bane and sort of Shannara. And that kind of starts the fantasy as big, thick trilogies um, that then continues on into the 80s and 90s. And the 90s is a period when you get a lot of, I think, what you'd see as the very much like in the vein of Tolkien medieval fantasy, uh, like big, big, maybe 12 or 15 book series like The Wheel of Time uh, by Robert Jordan. You get the work of Terry Goodkind. You get um, Robin Hobb. Um, and you get George R. R. Martin starting. I think it's 1996 when Game of Thrones first comes out. A huge amount of fantasy is at this point either inspired or influenced by Tolkien or just unashamedly imitating The Lord of the Rings. But for other writers, it was a case of acknowledging but writing against some of Tolkien's ideas. If you take someone like Martin, George R. R. Martin, they're clearly reacting to Tolkien. Like they, they love Tolkien, they respect Tolkien, but they fundamentally disagree with him and they're... And their books um, are kind of challenging Tolkien. So Martin thinks Tolkien got the Middle Ages totally wrong in that, and, and a lot of post-Tolkien fantasy did too, where he calls it Disneyland Middle Ages, where it's very safe and very clean and people have good teeth and nobody dies horribly of disease at the age of four. And Martin kind of set out to write his version of what he thought would be a more, quote-unquote, realistic fantasy. And that's a very problematic word. <laughs> um, so, you know, in his case, realism includes a lot more uh, physical and sexual violence, um, but also more kind of lethal unpredictability, where Tolkien had this idea of the the eucatastrophe, a sudden good catastrophe, the sudden, when things look hopeless and then suddenly it's okay. Like when the Riders of Rohan show up and Minas Tirith is under siege and everything looks awful and then on the horizon, um, you know, uh, Theoden shows up with, with 6,000 cavalry. Um, and Tolkien saw this as being very important, whereas Martin uh, basically ran with the idea of a disc catastrophe, the sudden change for the worst, where you'll think things are going to be okay. So, for example, um, I noticed that the uh, the last chapter featuring uh, Robin Catelyn Stark before the Red Wedding, it ends with the line, we're going home. Everything's going to be okay. And for those of you who are not familiar with Game of Thrones, they all die. Brutally and shockingly, a discatastrophe. Before delving into Game of Thrones any more, though, I wanted to take a quick break. I wanted to update you about the end of the season and Patreon. I'll give you the full details at the end of the show, but the TLDR version is the next episode is number 10 and the end of season 3. Season 4 will be back in September, but there will be no WTTE until then, unless you're a patron. If you head to patreon.com slash WTTE, you can find out how you can join the community, support the show, and get some bonus episodes during the summer. There are more details at the end, but for now, let's get back to Game of Thrones and people being horribly murdered. So, Game of Thrones in its incarnation as a TV show is an interesting case. Once again, Lord of the Rings is an inescapable presence, in this case with the Peter Jackson film versions, because there's no way that Game of Thrones would have got the chance and the huge budget it did without the Lord of the Rings films demonstrating the popular desire for epic fantasy. 
But the Game of Thrones TV show has gone far, far beyond the traditional audience for fantasy. It's gained mainstream respectability in a way that very few other fantasy series or novels ever have. I mean, part of this is the FOMO. Once a show gets a certain size, you, know, you kind of just have to watch it or just sit in silence as all of your friends talk about it. But there's also this separation that happens between a, a huge work in a particular genre and the genre itself. And you'll see people kind of playing down the fantasy element. So you'll have people say, oh, I really love Game of Thrones. I don't normally like fantasy. But, you know, it, it's not really fantasy. I'm interested in the politics and the history. Um, as if that those things are more legitimate than, than dragons or ice zombies. Because, because what they exist in the real world and these things don't. Or as if there are no other fantasy novels that deal with politics. There are two other major works in particular where this sort of separation of a work from its genre has happened as well. One is Harry Potter. I mean, Harry Potter novels are not really fantasy novels anymore, or books about wizards and magic. They're just Harry Potter novels. And something similar has happened with Marvel in the last maybe decade or so. Marvel films are not fantasy or science fiction or comic book or superhero films. They're Marvel films. They've become something onto themselves. And it's revealing, if you look at the top 25 highest grossing films of the 21st century, the list is completely dominated by fantasy. The films are mostly installments in a series, and they're almost all fantasy, or maybe sci-fi fantasy. So you've got the Star Wars films, you've got numerous Marvel installments, Jurassic World, Harry Potter, and children's fantasy like Frozen. In fact, of the top 25, there are only three films which are unambiguously not fantasy. So there's the James Bond film, Skyfall, and two Fast and Furious installments. I think it's Fast and Furious 83 and 84. Fantasy is everywhere. The most popular children's books of all time, the biggest TV shows, the highest grossing films, best-selling series of novels. But a lot of it looks the same. It can all be a little bit pale, male, and dragon scale. Dr. Hines hinted at this earlier, but I was really keen to get a much wider angle on fantasy. What else is out there? And by the way, I will put links to all of these authors and books on the WTTE website, because there are quite a few names here. If you want to look for recent, relatively recent fantasy authors who are different from Tolkien, or doing things that are interesting... Um, okay, so I mentioned earlier that Tolkien kind of... Um, sets the standard for high fantasy, uh, epic fantasy, that it's big, stake, the world is at stake, um, the characters are larger than life. If you are looking more for low fantasy, um, where basically it's more, maybe more gritty, maybe um, less morally clean cut, um, he is, he, he is unfortunately a, a white man, but Scott Lynch's um, The Lies of Lockamora is excellent. It's basically about two con men, mm, well, a group of con men, but it focuses on two in fantasy Venice as they pull off various heists and con jobs. Um, very funny, very dark. Um, I'll trigger warning for, for kind of physical child abuse, at least. Or, uh, again, if you want kind of modern, more interesting sword and sorcery, you could try um, the work of Saladin Ahmed, um, where he takes kind of sword and sorcery, but puts it from a Middle Eastern Arabic perspective, um, rather than the incredibly white, uh, possibly, you know, historically inaccurately white (laughs) European Middle Ages that you might be used to. Um, If Tolkien is super medieval and you want fantasy set in a different time period, um... I really recommend Mary Robin Aquall's um, Glamorous Histories. They're ba- it's basically Jane Austen with magic. So it's um, 
very beginning of the 19th century Regency period, um, where there's a magic system that is so well integrated into the world, where magic is this very delicate, uh, illusionary thing. And it's, it's all about appearance and performance and doing things appropriately, which is very appropriate for the culture that, it, that it's being cast against. Um, but again, if you want fantasy set in uh, a more modern period, you could have a look at urban fantasy. So Shona Maguire uh, has done some really interesting um, work with kind of modern urban settings where the paranormal and fairies and portals to other worlds exist and how that plays out. Um, if Tolkien is very European or Western European, um, you can look further afield. So I, I mentioned Nadi Okorofor earlier um, and Who Fears Death. Um, you could also try Rebecca Roanhorse's uh, The Trail of Lightning, which is set in the American Southwest, which has a primarily Native American cast and features magic um, interacting with and having an effect on, um, I believe, Navaculture. I'd have to double check that. Um, if you want to look further afield, uh, Ken Liu, uh, who is... Um, I don't, it's funny, most people have probably actually read him as the translator of Xi Jinlu's Three-Body Problem, but he writes amazing work himself. Uh, I really recommend his short story, The Paper Menagerie. It's absolutely just gorgeous and will make you cry if you if you have feelings. Um, but he's also written his own um, epic fantasy silk punk, uh, which is basically kind of a, a Chinese-inspired epic fantasy. Uh, the Grace of Kings and The Wall of Storms are the first two books fantasy writers do love a good formula for a title oh the noun of noun it's it's a winning it's a winning formula <laughs> um if tolkien is uh, at the very least small c conservative if not if not large c conservative and you want kind of fantasy writers who are more um radical in their politics maybe um china mayville is an avowed marxist and author of weird fiction with everything from um, people with beetles for heads to uh, police forces that appear out of nowhere and disappear you because you crossed an imaginary line to uh, a city that is dragged by a gigantic whale monster creature towards a crack in reality. Um, and then if you want if you want someone to look out for who's important in fantasy right now, um, I'd have to say N.K. Jemison, where she has won the Hugo Award uh, for three years in a row which is unprecedented, uh, after becoming the first uh, first black woman to win the Hugo Award with um, the fifth season. Um, she is getting not just attention in fantasy, but she now has a column in the New York Times. She's kind of achieved mainstream uh, notice. Um, and her work really does deserve this. Like, it's incredibly well-written. It's epic in scale and very human at the same time. And it's again quite deeply political if you are if you are aware of um race and race relations in contemporary america this is a seriously good list one that takes in multiple countries races genders languages ideologies and, and more this podcast is killing me though i keep getting way too many book recommendations so i haven't seen the conclusion to game of thrones as i'm recording this but you probably have as you're listening right now and if you're looking for more of the same or something utterly different, I think this episode's got you covered. And so I asked Dr. Hines about the future. Is he optimistic about the future of fantasy? The great thing about fantasy is it inherently can be very diverse, very varied, and very imaginative. That doesn't always mean it is. We've both read plenty of fantasy, I presume, that is uh, cliched and kind of derivative. But fantasy... Um, 
as the literature of imagination has this incredible potential to just ask what if and to go off and speculate about that. Um, and so I think fantasy over the next couple of years um, is going to look more diverse um, both in terms of the background of writers, in terms of sexuality, in terms of um, race, in terms of the writers. We're, thankfully, we're going we're gonna to see a greater diversity there. Um, and it's just going to have more variety for readers and more representation where readers will be able to find themselves in these books, which is fantastic. A choice word to end on. Or, in the words of China Mieville, no matter how commodified and domesticated the fantastic in its various forms might be, we need fantasy to think the world and to change it. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. As I mentioned at the break, head to patreon.com, so that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n, patreon.com slash w-t-t-e, and find out how you can get bonus episodes and other rewards and help WTTE return for a fourth season. I've got two more patrons since the last episode. Bernadette and Brendan, thank you so much. A huge thanks also to Jared Hines, my guest this week. There are links to his work on the website, which, by the way, is wttepodcast.com. There's also a full list of old works mentioned in the episode, and there were quite a few. The show is on Instagram and Facebook at words to that effect, and I'm on Twitter at CEDREED, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. You can use the hashtag WTTEpodcast if you're talking about the show. Music this week was by Patty Mulcahy, and there are links to the music on the WTTE website too. And that's it. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks for the final episode of Season 3. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.